Hi, my name is Mike Dillard, and this is Self Made Man, the podcast for those who want to leave their mark on the world and create a legacy of honor, integrity, and achievement in every aspect of your life. I'm glad you're here, and once again, it is time to forge your destiny. Today, we have the incredible opportunity to talk to the billionaire founder of Activision and Blizzard Games, Mr. Howard Marks. So Howard purchased Activision Games way back in 1991, and he's grown it into the multi-billion dollar publishing company behind Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, along with many other games that you would recognize. Well, today, he's also diving headfirst into the crypto industry through his latest company, StartEngine.com. The StartEngine is an equity-based crowdfunding platform that allows entrepreneurs to raise money through the crowd by offering real equity in their business. Now, along with that, today, Howard and StartEngine are also on the cutting edge when it comes to crypto assets. And it's one of the first platforms in the world that's helping entrepreneurs to launch STOs, which stand for Security Token Offerings. These are legally compliant security tokens that represent real ownership and equity in a crypto company. Now, as I've mentioned before, security tokens will be one of the biggest ways that crypto will change the world because they're going to allow us to tokenize any asset or any business instead of those that can just afford to go public. But what I loved most about this interview was the chance to talk to Howard about the changes that crypto will bring to the gaming industry. As you'll hear, we've both seen the writing on the wall and that digital objects of value secured on the blockchain will completely revolutionize the gaming industry in the years to come. This is an absolutely incredible opportunity to learn about this brand new industry from one of the leaders in the space. Now, with that being said, I'd encourage you to consider putting a small amount of money, whatever you're willing to lose, into the crypto market now and in the weeks and months to come. I would recommend averaging in a little bit of money each and every week, maybe every single Monday, so that you can average in over time because the market is down around 80% from its all-time high a year ago. So if you want to buy low and sell high, now is the time to start building your positions in these assets. Now, if you need help learning how to do that, head over to selfmademan.com forward slash crypto today. I've put together a brand new masterclass that'll teach you everything you need to know to buy and safely store crypto. And the best part is that I'm going to give you access to my personal portfolio as a free bonus. So if you don't know where to start or which assets to invest in, my portfolio is going to save you a ton of time and research. And it is simply a list of all of the crypto assets that I've personally invested in. So head to selfmademan.com forward slash crypto now to learn more. And please note that registration for this masterclass is going to close this Thursday night on January 10th. So as of today, you've got about 72 hours if you'd like to join the program. And then that will be it. So head to selfmademan.com forward slash crypto. And please help me welcome Mr. Howard Marks. Howard Marks, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome to Self Made Man. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, this is a, a really unique opportunity to speak to someone with your background and list of achievements. And I wanted to really start by sharing your story with the audience for people who are not familiar with it, because even if they don't know you by name in particular, they know your work. And I think the best place to start might be with the fact that you were uh, kind of into video games at one point or another in your life. Well, that's true. <laughs> I, I started out as an, as an engineer at the University of Michigan. And my roommate and I uh, were not as interested in studying as much as trying to start a business. And we started the first business as a software company for the previous computer to the Macintosh called the Apple II. And we did some software for that and had some success in Ann Arbor. And that was our first entree into entrepreneurship and had the opportunity to get noticed by Apple, who at that point was Steve Jobs, who was running the company in the Macintosh project in, in their 1983, and inspired us to build a, a bigger company. And we basically started growing a business that was making software, but not necessarily 
understanding strategy at that time. We were in college, we we're still students. And the Macintosh came out, as everybody knows, it became a success and we were not prepared for it. We were still working on the old system and very frustrated by those change of events and not really understanding as entrepreneurs that you, you have to also plan for the future. You can't just look at what you have today. Even though the market looked good, it just was dissipating pretty quickly. And we were searching for other opportunities in the computer field, software field, and we stumbled upon some other computers that were coming out from a company called Commodore. It was a small company at, a, at one point and was growing extremely fast with their own computer offerings, one of them called the Commodore 64 and then later the Amiga. All of that was great. Again, same story. These companies get supplanted by other people, including you know Microsoft and the IBM PC, which takes over and frustrates us again. And then we decide, you know what? Why don't we focus our energy in the game business, video games? And at that point, we're now late 80s. The video game market is destroyed. Why? It turns out the biggest provider of video games was a company called Atari. And Atari was owned by Warner Brothers, which again, again the music studio and um, film studio at that time owned Atari. But the thing was crashing and then there was a lot of issues. The market was imploding and basically Atari was going away and there was no true replacement at that point. And so everybody thought, you know what, video games are going to be dead. Great. So we come in just then when the marketplace is its worst position and we find a company called Activision that was also going out of business and we buy control for it for about 400,000 bucks. That's all the money, mo not all the money, most of the money we had from running our businesses. Then we decide to restructure the company. We had to lay off most of the people move the company from Mountain View down to Los Angeles, buy out the banks. By the time we were down, we, we put in pretty much every dollar we ever made in, in our career all in with the notion that we think video games are here to stay and they're just going through a bad phase. And that was the rebirth of Activision. And did you buy Activision because they had an existing game content library? Because it sounds like you... You bought it, moved it, gutted it. <laughs> you basically could have started your own company from scratch unless they had some kind of IP or, or personnel that you guys thought was really valuable. Well, that's what everybody was saying to us. You know, this is a dumb idea because the company is not only bankrupt and you have to run through a bankruptcy proceeding, which we did. But also, the retailers had all of this inventory of, of Activision games, and they were not prepared to buy new games from us until we took all of it back. So we're basically hurt by the fact that the company has a bad reputation because it went through a bankruptcy, and people were afraid of working with us. People didn't want to be, you know, it was hard for us to even hire people to come and work for us. But also the retailers were not necessarily very excited about it because they looked at their inventory and said, I want, I want to get rid of it. I don't want to take a loss on of it. So, yes, they did have IP. Now, the, 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 it turns out the biggest IP was the brand, but no one felt it was a good brand. It had a library of an amazing games, games like Pitfall, Kaboom, that people may have played in the past. It had uh, Zork. It had a, a bunch of games, I would say maybe a few dozen great titles. Then it also had games in the middle of development that needed rescue because most of them were either failing at being developed or they needed extra capital to be finished. So we basically walked into a, a battlefield. It was a mess. And the good news was we didn't know what we were going to see. We had no idea what to anticipate, including all the lawsuits. Everything that was related to the previous company was very messy. And we walked in as young people in our late 20s with very little limited capital, having no idea what we're doing, 
not knowing the business at all, with a simple concept. And the concept was this, that video games are going to be a big business down the road, and they will be supplanted by a, a technology called the CD-ROM, which is now the you know, DVDs. And we thought that that technology allows you to put a lot of data on a, on a disc, and it's very cheap to manufacture. In the past, video games were done on cartridges, and those cartridges were extremely expensive and very limited in memory size. So you, you couldn't make games that were rich in graphics with video, audio, and everything we know today couldn't be done at all in the cartridge business. But we believed in that evolution. And so this shows you the maturation we had at that time, where in the past we were always working for old systems that were being supplanted, like the Apple II by supplanted by the Macintosh. And now we were saying, you know what, let's let's do the opposite. Let's supplant everybody who's doing cartridges using the CD-ROM games. But the problem at that point was all of the manufacturers of game consoles, Nintendo, Sega, were all still on a cartridge basis. And the only place to do a CD-ROM was the PC, you know, your computer. And at that point, it was not even built into the computer. It was an accessory, like you would buy a microphone today to plug into your computer to get better microphone. That point, that was the same thing with the CD-ROM. So imagine you had to not only plug it into your computer, install the drivers, it was a mess, and then run the game. But there was a group of hobbyist enthusiasts who were willing to do it. And we made the, some of the first games on CD-ROM. The, one of the big hits we had when we started out the gate was Zork, Return to Zork, which was a well-known you know, adventure game. And we did it all in beautiful audio, video. And then we had the idea to take uh, a game that Activision owned or actually had the license for called MechWarrior and remake it into a 3D super high-end game. Yeah, that, and was, that was... that became a humongous hit. That was, uh, that was a category creator for sure. Yeah, it was the first game really at mass to use 3D chips. But, you know, today's 3D chips are ubiquitous but at that point again a 3d chip was a board you had to buy installing your pc it was crazy you know they were not built into those computers you had to keep upgrading your pc with new stuff yeah and we worked for the future this time and not for the past and that was a major major difference in our strategy and you know the result today is it's a company that is worth 50 billion plus in market cap. It's the largest in the world. It's doing amazingly well. And, and you really, you know, for, for those who are listening, working for the future and being patient about it, because it took us many years to get out of the doldrums, was worth it. Now, I have to, I have to segue into a related topic when it comes to that that I know you're involved in, which is the crypto space. And maybe a good segue into that would be what you're doing through Start Engine. So why don't we start there? Let's start with why you started Start Engine, what it is, and then what you guys are doing through that in the crypto industry. Absolutely. So let's project forward a couple, you know, decades later. I'm pondering what to do next, and I wanted to help young entrepreneurs succeed. So I start an accelerator called Start Engine the first one in Los Angeles. And I end up, you know, helping about 20 companies a year. And after a couple of years, I realize it's not working. You know, these companies are not getting financed. They're not raising money. They're going out of business. It's really rough and tough. And I, I don't think I was a very good investor, frankly, because I invested in women-led companies, companies led by minorities, companies that were in areas that were not exciting, you know, and that ability to invest pretty much in, in, in believing in the entrepreneur was not shared by the marketplace, you know, venture capitalists, angel investors, they were looking for, you know, the thing that found that felt like the next big hit. So at that time, you know, Uber was starting to make some waves, everybody wanted to be Uber for everything, right? And I was thinking, well, hold on a second, Uber for everything, that's not the only thing that's going to be successful. There's other ideas that could be successful. And realizing that, I said, 
we need to change how finance works. Now, that's a big idea, but without changes in the legislation and the laws, my idea made, meant it couldn't be implemented. So just then, a new rule came out, a new law called the JOBS Act. It's an act that was voted into Congress, signed by Obama in 2012, April 2012. And I read about it, and I said, when this comes out, it's going to be big. Why? Because for the first time in 80 years, ordinary people, you know, consumers can invest in, in startups, exciting stuff. So, so non- non-accredited investors, basically. Right. Consumers can now invest in the next Uber. Your neighbor starts Uber, you can invest in it. Before, you couldn't. You could lend them money and get 8% back on your money, but you couldn't say, I want to be an investor in this hot new company. Now you can. That's a major, major shift in how finance works in this country. When I saw that, I said, this is it. We're gonna create a crowdfunding business around it. And that I, would, I was calling the first, I would say storm, and, and, and what we're gonna see as a perfect storm. The first storm was this crazy idea that you could create a business and you could help entrepreneurs raise money directly from their fans, users, customers, general public, anybody. You could go on on Facebook and say, hey, I have a business, you want to invest in me? Nuts. And the second storm, this perfect storm, happened a few years later, which actually happened about a year and a half ago, when I read about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies were using basically crypto, Bitcoin, and Ethereum to invest in companies. And I'm like, looking at this saying very, I was so excited about it. I said, wow, this is amazing. And they're raising a ton of money, but they're not following any of the rules. You know, they're just going out there with a white paper, a, bit, a nice, beautiful website and saying, hey, I have this new hot decentralized application and I want you to invest. And people would come in in minutes and invest millions. However, none of them used any of the rules that were required by the Security Exchange Commission. Right. And when I saw that, I said, hey, let's bring them out of the shadows. And that was the second storm for the perfect storm, which is the convergence of crowdfunding and crypto. So we're seeing the fallout of that right now over the last couple of months, right? We're seeing the SEC starting to issue subpoenas and starting to go after a lot of these ICOs and requesting that all of them, you know, file and register with the SEC. And that's one of the reasons why I think we've seen the market see such a big decline over the over the past 12 months. What do you guys do at Start Engine to ensure that the ICOs you guys are supporting are compliant? Well, absolutely. So as you mentioned, the SEC was not amused at all by all those companies who were raising money directly from the general public without using the rules that were established. And so the remedy for that is to give all the money back to the investors. And if there's any money left, but if there wasn't, they're going to be in serious trouble. What we did is we didn't touch that marketplace because we're all about following the rules. You know, Start Engine is a funding portal. We're registered with the SEC. We are a member of FINRA, which is, a, which is the industry's regulator. And our idea is follow the rules because that's a long-term business plan. You know, you're not short-term trying to circumvent rules. So what we did is we brought those companies who were willing to follow what we were offering, which is to follow the rules, and we brought them into Start Engine and start helping them raise capital. And there are three big rules that we follow, that we use. One is called regulation crowdfunding. That's also called, in jargon, Title Three of the JOBS Act the third chapter. It allows any company to raise up to a million dollars directly from anyone with some limitations, one million dollars, with very little cost. You know, you, you, you need a little bit of legal work, a little bit of accounting work, but you don't have to make an audit. It's pretty cool. It's very quick to put in place. You know, million dollars, not so bad. And we've 
help over 250 companies, nearly 300 companies raise capital this way. The second rule we use is called Regulation A+, and also called Title IV of the Jobs Act, fourth chapter. And that one is the gold standard. And, and what it does, it allows companies to raise up to 50, 50, 50 million per year. But you need to have a two-year audit. You need to hire an attorney to help file the paperwork with the SEC, and it takes several months. True. But once you go through that gate, then you can raise quite a lot of money from the general public and the shares that you sell to your investors can be traded should there be a marketplace. And the third one we use is called Reg D506C, weird name, but basically it's a way to raise money for companies from accredited investors. These are investors who make over 300,000 a year as a couple in income or have a million dollars of assets outside of their home Represents about 5% of the country. Not a big group, but still, uh, you can raise money that way. And then you can do combinations of regulation crowdfunding plus regulation D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is what we use for ICOs, and now we call them STOs, security token offering, to make sure that people understand when they are purchasing these shares. Those are securities and not tokens that are just, you know, out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that's the next big that's the next big I think chapter in the crypto industry. And as far as that market goes, I've been involved since 2013. I bought my first Bitcoin from Mt. Gox in, in 2013 and and I've been very involved in the industry since. You're clearly a futurist and what do you see taking place in that industry over the next few years? So, I'll tell you what we're doing now and then I'll give you my my thoughts. So, okay. So now you can do a security token offering. It's the same thing as selling shares in a company. I mean, it's not nothing really new and innovative except for the fact that you can use Bitcoin and Ethereum to invest in the company. But in reality, that's not a big innovation. However, what we're going to be doing soon is we're going to be launching, once we are registered by the SEC to do it, we're launching our own secondary trading platform where you can trade those shares that you purchased. And it's, instead of calling them shares, what we're going to do is every time we issue shares to investors, they, they have the shares, but they also get what we call a digital, digital stock certificate, also called a token. So what we're doing is we're tokenizing all the shares, putting them on Ethereum using a technology proposed standard that we have created called ERC-1450. That standard we are proposing is to how is to recreate the modern version of a stock certificate. In the past, when you invested in a company, you would get these beautiful looking stock certificates. They're done in beautiful print with decorations and it tells you how your name is on it and tells you how many shares you own. That's done. People don't issue them anymore because there's a new rule that says book entry. You can just give people a copy receipt. You don't have to give a stock certificate. So we're bringing them back, but this time not as paper. We're bringing them back as a digital certificate, as a token on the Ethereum blockchain. So that's our next big step so that people can invest in these exciting companies, and they can trade the tokens that they received or digital stock certificates in those companies. And you know what? That is, sounds like the NASDAQ remake, except that, as you probably know, most companies are not going to go on the public market. In fact, even worse than that, in the last 20 years, we've lost half of the number of companies that are public. So it used to be over 10 Thousand companies were on the NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, national marketplaces, and now it's less than 5,000. It's crazy. That means that an ordinary investor who wants access to companies has half the number of companies they can invest in because the marketplace has decided that it's too expensive to go public or the people who want to go public are too small to be able to do it. So we're replicating that entire ecosystem of 
raising money from the general public, trading the shares with the general public in a micro manner using Start Engine. That is a big idea. Yeah. Is it similar in fashion to what uh, T0 is or Polymath? Absolutely. So, so T0 is one of our customers. We, we, we help them raise capital and they are, they, they have an alternative trading marketplace. People call them ATSs and they are going to be trading crypto tokens as well, cryptocurrencies and tokens. Polymath is a company that is tokenizing those securities, real estate, stocks into smart contracts. That's their role. And T0's role is to help people trade them. Right. Very cool. And so all of this uh, that you guys are going to be doing is going to be under the Start Engine brand? Yes. So everything is branded Start Engine from the time you want to raise money. You go on Start Engine and you say, hey, I want to raise money. Your investors get these cryptocurrency tokens in their hands. And then they say they want to trade them. They go on, on, on Start Engine to do the trading. So we've created a, a vertical integration of everything so that it works. Our concern was if we were dependent, relying on, on third parties to do that, to do some of those pieces of the plumbing, you know, the plumbing, we would be waiting a long time. And so we said, you know what, instead of waiting, let's create the plumbing ourselves. So we built every layer that was required to do the plumbing so that we can help entrepreneurs raise the capital they need. We can help uh, investors invest in exciting new ideas. And then we can help investors trade and get liquidity for those ideas once we become registered. Can you help us understand, and and me specifically, (laughs) um, what the difference would be between, let's say, you know, I've got my, let's just use my company, Self Made Man, as an example, right? Do a couple of million dollars a year in revenue in our first year. And I potentially want to go raise capital, build a team, build an office, go that route. And I want to do it on Start Engine. So I understand the traditional model where I could essentially raise money through y'all's platform and give out shares and stock and things like that versus doing it through a security token. What would be the difference? Why would I want to choose one over the other? Well, it turns out that we're not going to give you that choice. Hmm. And the reason is because the way we looked at the cryptocurrency or the digital token, it's just a digital stock certificate. Right. It is not either or. It's not like, oh, I issue shares or I issue token. No, you always issue shares, securities, whether it's a model called the revenue share where you give a, a piece of your revenue royalties. That's a security, right? A convertible note where you invest in a company and the company promises either to give you the money back or to give you shares in the company. That's a convertible note. That's still a security. So in those models, you're going to be issuing shares, but you're going to deliver security tokens to these investors. So it's not, well, which way should I go? We believe the marketplace is everybody's going to be only issuing security tokens. And the reason is it makes it easier to trade. Right. Now, yeah. if someone yeah, if someone just wants to invest the money and wait 10 years for the company to be sold, they don't need any of that. None of that is necessary, right? Because they just wait for your phone call. Hey, I just sold my business. Here's your money. Off we go. Right. But to the extent you want to be able to trade and have liquidity for what you've purchased. And that's, if you think about it, that's the biggest innovation the cryptocurrencies brought to the table. The innovation, the biggest innovation was not that you can use Bitcoin to invest in a company and buy utility tokens. The innovation was you could trade them. Ah, if you can trade them, then I'm going to buy them. Imagine if people were buying all these tokens, there was no way to trade. Well, guess what? No one would have bought them because they were not buying them to use them eventually down the road as a utility. That was not the idea. The idea was to invest and speculate. So, and speculation, fine. As long as the entrepreneur gets the capital, they can build their business and deliver what they've promised. That's a great thing. 
So the reason these investors were flocking to all these ICOs and crypto and all of that was because there was a secondary marketplace or they were promised that those tokens would trade on Binance or or Shapeshifter or Kraken, Bittrex, and they felt, okay, you know what? I'm going to take the risk. I'll invest and then I'll trade it for more money. Two questions for you. A couple of questions come to mind. The first thing that, you know, as let's just say I tokenize my company, right? And I, and I do a, a capital raise, uh, essentially ICO 2.0, as you guys like to mention it on the website. I've then got to get that token listed on an exchange, which I don't have a lot of control over. So is that something that you guys assist with or how does that work? Yes. So as I mentioned to you, we've integrated everything. So the idea would be you've issued those tokens, you've raised the capital, and now you go to Start Engine again and say, hey, I want to allow my investors to trade them. And we will handle that with our secondary marketplace called Secondary. That's the name of our marketplace. Once we become registered, this will go live and then we'll allow our investors to trade. And then, and I'm not an expert in this in this field, so so help me understand this. But one of the risks that I see is, let's say we raise $250,000, right? Not a substantial amount of money, so really small market cap, which can be, you know, uh, manipulated fairly easily. If a competitor wants to come in who's doing 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year and buy up a majority of those tokens and then, you know, sell them all <laughs> just to decrease the value, what happens in that scenario? Well, the good news is this. We're seeking registration for a broker-dealer ATS and the ability to do that. We have to supervise. So if we see market manipulation, we will halt the trading of that token. Mm. You don't see that with the existing companies, those websites. They call themselves exchanges, but they're really not an exchange in reality because they're not registered with the SEC. There are only 20 exchanges in this country, by the way, who are registered with the SEC. That includes the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. So in many ways, the way to look at this is that they don't really supervise, but you're required per the rules to do that. So if someone is going to come in and take control of a company, we would supervise that. And their required, their acquirer is required to file paperwork if they got more than 10% of the company. That's called a, a 13D. They have to file that. If you don't, they're in violation. They're in serious trouble, by the way. Very, very big trouble. So there are all these protections in place when you work with the rules that are in and are the books, the laws of our country for securities. There are protections for investors from being duped or for companies like yourself of being manipulated or someone can take control of you unbeknown to you or manipulate the price of your stock. You have to believe in the system. So if you look at the NASDAQ or New Stock Exchange, there is, I would say, a certain amount of credibility and trust. I know there are problems. We all know. But is it that bad that would preclude you from using those marketplaces? No. The markets are, are, are maintained reasonably well, and the SEC supervises and make sure that things are not being manipulated. I mean, you remember the Elon Musk debacle, right? Right. Where he tweets, <laughs> you know, funding secured he wants to sell <laughs> right. shares for $420. He wants to buy back all those shares, whatever. Yeah. Well, as much as he thought that was funny, and I'm a big fan of his, the SEC did not appreciate that humor because people lost money when he made that tweet. The ones who were shorting the stock lost money. That means they were they, they borrowed stock, sold it in the market, and hoped it was going to go down so they can buy it back and make a profit, right? They were not amused. Right. Yeah, and so that's, that's, uh, that's a big part of this. It's definitely a part of the maturation phase here as we uh, 
as we go out of uh, the Wild West days of crypto the last few years, which uh, which is really exciting because now real opportunities are, are coming online that have been you know, vetted uh, a bit more and that are compliant. One of the uh, one of the final questions I have for you on this topic is around distributions, right? So let's say my company is making a profit. We're going to do a quarterly distribution. How do you see that taking place in uh, the crypto model? Well, the good news is that the crypto model is perfectly suited for this. And the reason is very simple. If you want to send people dollars, money, it costs money. So if you want to do a wire, it could cost $20. If you want to send someone a check, there's the postage. You have to fill the, print the check, send it. If you want to send someone an, an ACH, which is a bank transfer, that can cost 50 cents, a dollar. All the handling, it's not cheap. And then you, all the record keeping, by the way. So good news is that using crypto, you can deliver money to people very efficiently, very inexpensively. The problem today is volatility. So if you say, hey, I got a dividend and I should receive my $2, you'll receive $2 in equivalent, let's say, in Ethereum, but that could change by the time you receive it. That's not great for investors. So I'm thinking that with stable coins, they're starting to appear all over the place. Stable coins are perfect. Why? Because they're stable. A dollar per token, for example. And the company who issues the stable coin has put in a bank account a verifiable amount of money to back that currency's value. So if you issue a million tokens, there's a million dollars in a bank account that you can trust because it's audited, verified, and that allows the marketplace to say, well, you know what? I believe that's worth a dollar. So good news is with these stable coins, as they become popular, you'll be able to pay all the dividends in crypto very inexpensively in a matter of pennies, right? And then using automation, all of the tax reporting, the bookkeeping reporting, all of that is done online. Next thing you know, we've created a new financial marketplace that, is, that can deliver dividends to investors virtually for no costs, very low cost. Yeah, that's great. I'm uh, a founder, not a founder, an investor in Basis, one of the stable coins that's in development right now so keeping my my fingers crossed that that'll be released soon and and see some adoption i have a natural segue here that really blends this topic and your previous background one of the areas of crypto that i'm most excited about is the fact that digital objects of value now exist for the very first time in history and that's right up your alley when it comes to the gaming world right we look at Platforms and tokens like Wax or Engine or Gifto uh, or Block V, which are all working on digital objects of value, so that now you can incorporate these objects into games. And instead of everybody just you know winning this reward for completing a challenge, you're actually getting a, a scarce resource that you can then go trade the special you know level fifty sword or armor or whatever it may be on an exchange from wallet to wallet, phone to phone, game system to game system. What are your thoughts on, on that space? Because I have to imagine you're pretty excited about it. Well, yes. However, most of those are violating the copyrights of those game publishers. Mm. So if you think about it, if you are selling a sword in World of Warcraft to someone else, that is the property of blizzard that is not the property of that person who thinks they own it they, they you know they it's my sword and my account but at any time blizzard can ban your account and you lose all your property by the way and then you can go to court and say hey that was my property to say no not really look at your terms of service mm. you're just a consumer you're just a subscriber huh right property doesn't go away in our laws now 
That said, CryptoKitties came out with a, a new innovation. So they made a game where they said that the kitties that were created as independent objects on Ethereum were actually not owned by the company anymore. They were owned by the, the player. So they could trade those crypto kitties for money legally, according, uh, and we're not violating the copyright of, of crypto kitties. And that worked. Yeah, I think some so, were sold for over $100,000. Right. So for, some people were spending a lot of money. I, I think that's market manipulation, by the way, that $100,000, believe yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, it's probably, you know, and again, they're not supervised by the SEC and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is where coming back to regulations, it's a good thing to add regulations because there's a lot of deception in this marketplace, by the way. Yeah. Now, going back to games, those companies who say they allow you to trade these weapons that you find in CSGO or or Team Fortress 2 or any of the Fortnite, you know, any of those popular multiplayer games are violating the game's copyright, by the way. You you probably have heard of, of, of people creating companies around it. You know, Brock Pierce had a company around it for many years where he was, you know, farming gold on World of Warcraft and selling it to players. Mm. You know, that's really, again, not, that's just, a, that's a gray marketplace that's not following the rules of, of the copyrights, it creates a marketplace. It showed the demand that consumers wanted to buy gold, right? So now the next generation of games coming out, hopefully, will use cryptocurrency and blockchain technology to allow their players to actually own those objects legally. Yeah, legally. I mean, to That's me, it, it's just product. such a, a big incentive to continue to play and invest in the in the game and it just to me it increases the longevity of the game and and expands the ecosystem which is the game developer is what you're after right correct so the game developer in the past wanted to control the entire database of game right if they if if there was a someone cheating they would ban the player and they would lose everything that was the incentive to not cheat so now you create a game where all the objects are actually owned by users, players, legally owned, like there's a legally binding contract that they, that's their property, right? They could trade their property, they could sell their property at their own will without any interference from the company, the game company. That's a big idea. CryptoKitties did it. There are other clones of CryptoKitties out there. However, that, that path signals to me that that could be the future of video games, where we've separated the game from its property. What kind of time horizon, right? Like, let's, is this, are you guys having conversations around this when it comes to Call of Duty? Is this a next-gen functionality? What kind of time horizon are we looking at? Well, it's going to take some time. But however, it's not going to be the big guys who are going to do it. Mm. It's going to be the newcomers who are going to do it. So, for example, a new developer is going to come out with the next, I would say, exciting multiplayer game. And that one, they say, hey, come and play my game because the objects are your property. And they will call out to the marketplace to saying, why are you playing Fortnite? You own nothing. You spent thousands of dollars and you got nothing. And if you try to sell your account, you can be banned and lose everything. Hey, play my game because those objects are yours. And now, and then you'll see exchanges popping up all over the place, trading those things. And it's going to be legal, meaning it's not going to violate anybody's copyright. And these people will have legal rights to these these objects that could be very valuable, by the way. And I think a new entrant will do it. And it, I think within the next two years, you'll see the first game that is pretty significant. CryptoKitties is very much like a, a tiny little pastime thing. It, it, you know, it's a Yamaguchi game where you create these, ob these creatures, but you, there's not much you can do with it. But it gives you a signal. You know, it's not a big game. It's, it's nothing like 
those multiplayer games. Yeah, and I'd have to imagine that PlayStation and Microsoft see the opportunity here because they control the ecosystems for the most part, you know, outside of the PC world where they would, I'd have to imagine, love to build exchanges into their platform. So when you log into your PlayStation account, you, you know, you have your collection there of all your digital assets, which is, they're going to get a piece of that in some way, right? Yeah, and, uh, not really. No? I think they're terrified by this idea. Wow. And in fact, I remember talking to Microsoft years back when I said they should publish free-to-play games, allow free-to-play games to be on the Xbox, and they were like screaming at me. <laughs> they were so upset because they said, look, we trained the marketplace to pay $60 for a game. The idea that they can play a free game is not acceptable. I said, but you could make more money selling items. And they, they were like, they couldn't understand what I was talking about. So don't don't worry about that. They're not going to accept this shift. Free-to-play games are now the standard. It wasn't, you know, 15 years ago. Thanks but to But now it is the standard. Yeah. Mobile apps. Yeah, like Candy Crush. and Yeah, those are, those are the standard. It's free-to-play. And, and people spend actually more money in those games than they would or, or if they bought the game, right? Right. Now, once you add uh, cryptocurrencies for the objects, and so people can actually own real property, I think it's going to grow the marketplace even further. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to allow players to have a, a, a real incentive inside of the game, which is amazing. So, you know, if uh, my kids spent hundreds of dollars on a game and that was it, right? Imagine if that money they spent can be recouped somehow by selling those properties. That would have been amazing for them. Yeah, it's going to create an entirely new digital, digitized marketplace ecosystem world, almost, you know, kind of like SimCity's 10, but with a real economy, frankly. It's going to be well, pretty amazing. But those games have real economies inside of the game, by the way. Right. They are, because you can trade inside of the game. Many of the games allow you to trade the, the properties. Not all of the games, but many of them, like CSGO and all those guys, or the World of Warcraft, you can trade with other players your weapon. Right. And there's, and there's inflation in the game, and there's real economies. The problem is it's controlled, it's centralized. Right. And it's completely controlled by one entity, which is the game publisher. So with the idea that things become money, so objects become either money or assets. It's such a big idea. I think most of the video game industry has no idea of what's going to happen. It's going to completely transform it. And I think in a good way. But it's typically not the entrants who are going to do it. It's usually innovators, young entrepreneurs who are going to come in with new ideas. And they're going to build a multiplayer game that is that has cryptocurrencies as its basis for its economy. And so people will be using Bitcoin to buy stuff inside of the game or a stable coin like the one you've invested in. And they will receive those objects and they will sell them for other cryptocurrencies or stable coins. Yeah, exciting, exciting new world ahead of us for sure. <laughs> um. It's really neat to watch the birth of a brand new technology and, and the ways that it's going to change the world. You've been very generous with your time today. I wanted to ask you if you had one final uh, piece of advice or words of wisdom to all of the entrepreneurs who are, are listening to you here today before we, uh, before we bring things to an end. Sure. I've enjoyed my journey and I continue to enjoy it. And I would basically tell those entrepreneurs to, one, work on cool stuff that you're passionate about. The most important thing, the most important trait is not that you went to Stanford or you're like, you know, all these wealthy people. That that That's not really what it's about. It's about grit, the intersection of passion and resilience. You cannot quit. You have to pursue your dreams, pursue your passions relentlessly. If you stop, you lose. So my advice is keep going. Uh, we've built a place here at Start Engine so you can raise capital, so you don't have to be the white male from Stanford and you know and get the VC money. We we can provide capital if you want to work hard to get that capital. 
it's going to work. So this is probably one of the greatest times ever to be an entrepreneur today. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. Well, Howard Marks, thank you so much for your time today. This was uh, a fascinating conversation and congratulations on all of your success and for contributing what you've learned to uh, individuals like myself and everybody who's listening here today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, guys, gals, thank you as always for listening. I appreciate you so much and we'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>